this morning, as we enter into the season of Advent, uh, we find ourselves at a pretty very fitting crossroads as we look forward to what God has in the future for us, what God has in store. There's a lot of anticipation and expectation uh, in my own heart and hopefully in yours as well for where God is leading us. But there's also probably a little bit of a looking back as we remember all that God has done in this place over the course of the last four and a half years that this church has been in existence because anytime you begin to take a step in a direction, right, you're stepping towards something and away from something else. You're moving in towards an, a new opportunity and perhaps away from an old one. We found this to be true in my family's life in 2012. In July of 2012, uh, we moved from our first starter home in Rowlett to the Fate area. Uh, the second home that we ever purchased. But in the process of that moving, uh, lots of things shifted for us and lots of things changed for us. And I can remember in the process of that moving, there was lots that we were excited about. We were very expectant and anticipating this new home that God had provided for us. And we believed this is the step that God was leading us to take. And we saw the events as that God had orchestrated them and aligned them in order to be able to position us in this particular place at that particular time. But as we stood on the doorstep of our, 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 our home in Rowlett, we kind of reminisced a little bit uh, about what we were leaving behind. It had been our first home, right? Uh, there was a lot of firsts that took place in that location for us. It had been our first home, so it was the first time that I sat down at a conference table in a title office and got a cramp in my hand from signing hundreds of documents right, in that home buying process. It was the first time uh, that our family had set up shop in a place that was going to be a permanent residence with us for a while. And as we looked back on all that had happened in that home, all the first that had taken place in that home, we were kind of filled with mixed emotions. Even though we believed the step that we were taking was best for our family, and even though we believed that we'd seen God orchestrate in the line and lead us in that direction, there were some mixed emotions for us. It was the home that we bought our first furniture, Right? And set it up, which is the furniture we still have today. It was the home we brought both our children home from the hospital to. Both our eight-year-old son and our four-year-old daughter. I had to think there for a moment. It's been a long week. Both our kids came home to the hospital, to that home. We brought them home there. A lot of first for us. We reminisced about all the work that we had done to the place, how we retiled the shower surround and bathroom floor upstairs. We painted every room in the interior and had someone come out professionally paint the exterior of the home. We replaced rotten siding in different parts of the, of, of the exterior of the home in order to keep it secure and safe and not leaking. Uh, we changed doors in the home, exterior and interior. We put posts up uh, on, the, on the front porch, built a pergola off, across the back deck, put in flower beds, rebuilt the fence in the backyard. Right? And we go on and on and on and on of all the work that we had done to the place. And we kind of sat there on the stoop of that home as we moved out and we reminisced about everything that had taken place there for us. While there was a great deal of anticipation and expectation for where we were going, there was a little bit of a mixed emotions about where we were coming from and what we were leaving behind. It's some reflection, time of reflection there. And there may be some of you in this room this morning who feel the same as we prepare to take a step in a new direction as God, even though we might see God behind the scenes and orchestrating the timing of the move and the location of the move and where he is sending us as we open this new chapter of the, in the season of this life of our church, there's a lot of excitement and expectation. There's also probably a little bit of reflection because for some of you that were first here in this location, for some of you, perhaps, um, maybe this was the first place you really connected in a church in your adult life. 
Maybe this is the only place you've ever really known as home as a church. For some of you, maybe um, you, you were baptized here in a cattle trough. Some of you, maybe your children were baptized here in said cattle trough. <laughs> some first here for you. Perhaps for some of you, it was the first place that you sat and every week heard the gospel proclaimed. And every week it intersected in your life. And as one person told me about a year ago now, he said, listen, I sat week after week after week and I began to realize that what I needed was a new heart to be a new man. Maybe that was a kind of first that took place here for you as well. Maybe you gave some blood, sweat and tears to this place. And helping to make buildings usable and functional. Maybe you poured energy and effort into it by laying, uh, laying carpet and tiles and sheetrocking, installing toilets and sound systems. Listen, it's okay to have mixed emotions as we move, as we reflect on all that God has done in this place. And as we anticipate all that he will do in this new location that he is leading us to. Because every time you move from one place to another, it comes with anticipation and reflection. It comes with looking forward to what God will do and looking back on what God has done. And knowing that as this chapter closes, it won't reopen. And so maybe there are some of you who had first here, and there's some mixed emotions about those things. And so in the season of Advent, as we look back on what God has done in Christ and look forward to what He will do in Christ, it's such a fitting time for us to make this transition because we find ourselves at that very same place in the crossroads in the life of the history of Redeemer Church. And so what I'd like to do this morning in the time that we have together in God's Word is I'd like to take us back to what I believe is the one thing that will do two things for us in the midst of all this change and transition. As we look back and we look forward, it's what will anchor us and what will drive us. It will be the anchor for us and the engine for us. Okay? As we enter into this season of Advent, as we think about the transition, as we think about the step that lies before us that we're about to take, moving to a new location, what is it that's going to anchor us as we move, and what's gonna, what is it that's going to drive us in that direction? It's the same thing that anchored us and drove us in this location as well. And it is Jesus. It is Jesus. So as we look forward to this new building, if you haven't been there yet, it's, it's really a really great space for us and the size and season and life cycle of where we are as a church right now as we move in that direction is a great location a great facility but listen we can have a great facility we can build our own building and if Jesus is not at the center of who we are as a church it will matter not where we meet and so I want to take us back to him this morning so if you've got a Bible, you can open to John chapter 1. We're going to read verses 1 to 18 together this morning. And then we're going to drill down on two things out of verse 14. But I want to get us full context here for where we're at. In John chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, John writes these words. He says, In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him. And without Him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. 
He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from him, or from, for from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. What is it that will anchor us and what is it that will propel us? What will serve to, to secure us and drive us? What will be the anchor and the engine force as we move? It is the centerpiece of the church throughout its history. Jesus Christ, the Word become flesh. And in this text, particularly in verse 14, there's two things that I want us to see this morning about Jesus that will function for us both as the anchor in the midst of all this change and transition that we are undergoing as a church and the engine to continue to drive us toward what God has in store in the future. And the first one is this, is that through Jesus Christ, God has come downstairs. God has come downstairs. In the early 1970s on British television, there was a television series that ran from 1971 to 1975 called Upstairs, Downstairs. Okay, and it wasn't a children's television. It sounds kind of like that. It was actually an adult drama that was, that was set in the, the early 1900s, and it kind of recounted the, 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 the kind of social norms of the day in the early 1900s as it captured and it pictured the differences between the aristocracy and the ruling class in Great Britain during that time. The government officials and the high, those, those who ranked high in, in government and business and had lots of authority and influence versus the servants and in, those day, in that day and time, the, the television show was set in, at 165 Eaton Place. It was a townhouse in the heart of London. And Richard Bellamy was a head of household. He was a member of parliament. And his wife was a member of the aristocracy, of uh, a ruling class, a uh, titled class. But they lived upstairs. But downstairs were the servants. There were the butlers and the maids and the cooks. And there was one individual, one servant downstairs who kind of put all the other servants in their place and gave them the directives of what they were to accomplish every day. And so you had the ruling class upstairs. You had the kings and the officials and the, those who had influence and those who had clout and those who had authority upstairs and those who had nothing were downstairs. You had the aristocracy upstairs and the servants downstairs. You had the members of parliament upstairs and you had the butlers and maids and cooks downstairs. And they didn't really interact a whole lot other than what they're based on the, the servants carrying out their job descriptions. And it kind of captured that for that period of the early 1900s in Great Britain where you had that kind of arrangement in these townhome properties. 
And oftentimes those who were upstairs, they didn't come down and mix with those who were downstairs. And those who were downstairs couldn't come up and mix with those who were upstairs because there was a separation between the two. There was a chasm, but there was a gap between those who were upstairs and those who were downstairs. It's kind of like in corporate America today. you got the CEO who typically his office of a very large Fortune 500 company. His office is going to be where? Upstairs in the penthouse. What are those in the mail room? Where are they? Typically downstairs somewhere in the basement, right? But here's the beauty of what took place at Christmas. And what we celebrate every year as we come to the season of Advent and we remember Jesus' birth is that in Jesus Christ, God, the King Almighty with all power and all might and all majesty and all glory has come downstairs. He's come downstairs. He's crossed the chasm. He's gotten into the elevator up on the penthouse floor and he's pushed B. And he's gone all the way down to rub shoulders with those who are in the mail room. The servants, the butlers, the cooks, and the maids. Jesus Christ has clothed himself in flesh and he's come downstairs. See, in, in, in Christ... In Christ, Jesus Christ is the incarnation of the God who has always been and who always will be. He became flesh and dwelt among us. He came to be among us, no longer separated from us, but he came downstairs to be with us. See, Jesus didn't just appear to be human. He, you know, there's a big theological five-cent term called the hypostatic union, right? And some of you are going, you lost me on that one, right? The hypostatic union basically means this, okay? It's very complex. It's a very five, kind of five-dollar term that describes a very complex theological reality that can be communicated in very simple terms. And here's what it is, that Jesus was 100% God and 100% man. He wasn't 50% God and 50% man, 75% God and 25% man. There was no mixture of that. In one person, in one body, you have all the fullness of God dwelling bodily and the realities of human flesh, a body that bled, a body that hurt, he came downstairs to rub shoulders with people like me and people like you in the incarnation. And a part of what that means for us is that in Jesus Christ, God has become visible and God has become vulnerable. In Jesus Christ, God has become visible. We can lay eyes on him and we can see him now we can see him as a person now, not just some deity who exists some far off place, but he's also become vulnerable because you know what, he, you know what happens whenever he takes on flesh? He becomes killable. He becomes sufferable. It's not really a word. He can suffer now. He becomes visible and vulnerable when he takes on flesh. And listen, as we move into a new chapter in our church's history, this Jesus, who is God incarnate, who has come downstairs, listen, he's come downstairs to rub shoulders with people like you and I and people unlike you and I. And unless we keep that at the very center of our church, that the word has become flesh and dwelt among us, 
Unless we keep that at the very center and the heart of Redeemer, we will not have a redemptive presence no matter where we meet and the building in which we assemble. God has come downstairs. But listen, this is the manner in which God has chosen to save. He's chosen to save and sanctify through Christ incarnate. But listen, it's not only the way that He, the manner in which He has chosen to save men and women, boys and girls, of every race, creed, color, and nationality, of every background and ethnicity. It's not only the, way that, the manner in which he's chosen to come, but it's also the manner in which he sends us out. Listen, you and I, if we are to be faithful to Jesus' mission and we're to make him accessible, we're to make, help him become, or make him visible and help people to see him as vulnerable in the lives of, of the community in which we reside. Listen, the incarnation was not just the manner by which God chose to save, but it's also the manner by which God chooses to send by which he sends his church. Derek Webb, in a song released many years ago on an album um, about the church, he says in a song titled, Take to the World. Listen to what he says about the manner in which the church is to be active and present in the world. He says, go in peace to love and to serve. Let your ears ring long with what you have heard. And may the bread on your tongue leave a trail of crumbs to lead the hungry back to the place that you are from. And then he says, and take to the world this love, hope, and faith. Take to this world this rare, relentless grace. And then he says this, and like the three in one, Father, Son, and Spirit, you know you must become what you want to save. In other words, you've got to move towards them. You've got to be relatable to them. You've got to set up presence among them. Because that's still the way, he says, that he takes to the world. That God did not save the church to be isolated from the community and those that it's trying to reach and engage, but he saved the church so that there might be a gospel witness to the God who's come downstairs in every community, in every town, in every suburb, in every urban center, in every rural community that exists on the face of the earth. That there might be a presence there as the church is planted and establishes roots and shows God as one who has made himself visible in Jesus Christ and vulnerable in Jesus Christ as we testify to the fact that he was born as a baby in a manger and died as a criminal on a cross. That we're taking this message to the world. And if we are to operate faithfully as those who are on mission with God, and if Jesus is to remain at the center of who we are as a church, then we have got to go. We've got to go to the people that we're trying to engage and reach and not sit out in an isolated area and say, come to us. We've got to go to them. Now listen, for some of you, you may be going, well, man, that's, that's kind of, that's interesting because you know, aren't we situated in our community right now? And I, you would, would say, yes, we are. But we're situated in a very rural community, which by and large, if you look around the room this morning, the majority of the people, and in fact, as our elders begin to consider about where it is God would take us and where it is that God was sending us as we consider making a move from the ranch into a more populated area, one of the things that we considered was, who is it that's coming now? Who is it that's with us now? Who is it that's on board and on mission with us now? And predominantly, 
Predominantly, the individuals who are with us are folks from Royce City to Rockwall, and there's a large contingency of individuals who are coming from, this, from the, the town of Fate in that Fate area. And since we thought about Redeemer Church having a presence in a community, listen, we've, we, we, struggled for, we struggled really for the last 12 months to try and even get a life group started in the city limits of Royce City. But we currently have two life groups that meet in Fate, another one that meets just on the edge of East Rockwall between Rockwall and Fate. So three of the five life groups, another one is in downtown Rockwall, four of the five life groups are from Fate to Rockwall, and we've got one in Poetry in Quinlan and none in Royce City. So it made sense for us. Where are we drawing people from? Let's move into that area so we can continue to reach people that those people are inviting to come and be a part of what God is doing at Redeemer so we can establish a presence to the visibility and vulnerability of God in Jesus Christ because he's come downstairs. He's made himself accessible. We want to be accessible as a church as well. What will keep us centered, regardless of where we meet, is putting this reality at the very heart of who Redeemer is and continues to be. That in Jesus Christ, the Word has become flesh. God himself has come downstairs to rub shoulders, not with the high and mighty, but with the weak and the lowly, those who are humble, those who are needy. The second thing is this. As we consider where God is sending us, what will keep us anchored, what will drive us forward is the fact that in Jesus, not only has God come downstairs, but in Jesus you see the unfiltered, glory of God. In Jesus, you see the unfiltered glory of God. If you understand what John is saying here, when he says the word became flesh and dwelt among us, what you, re- what you have to come to realize is that Christmas is not just about having your heart warmed, <laughs> but about having your heart transformed and changed. Listen, there's all kinds of Greek words that John could have used to describe Jesus coming in flesh. He could have said that Jesus came to live or that he came to reside, he came to dwell. He says he came and dwelt among us. And the word that he chooses to communicate that with in Greek is the word that literally translates tabernacle. That Jesus came, the word became flesh and tabernacled. Makes it a verb, tabernacled among us. That's literally the word in the Greek text. If you go back into the Greek Old Testament, you see that word in Exodus, and you see it in Leviticus, and you'll see it in the, the law and the, the movements of God's people and the wanderings in the wilderness. That Greek word that, that we find in John chapter 1, verse 14, is found all over the Greek Old Testament. That Jesus is that, that, that Jesus came and he tabernacled among us. Now, why, why does John? If he's got all these other words that he could choose, he came to live or he came to reside, that he could have employed, if he, that's what he wanted to say in this text, why does John choose this one? Unless he's got an agenda. Unless he's trying to communicate something to us about who Jesus is. This word become flesh. If you go back into the Old Testament in Exodus chapter 33, you find Moses. And Moses is up on Mount Sinai and he's receiving the law from God. And he says to God, he said, God, I want to see your glory. Show me your face, God. I want to see you in all of your majesty and the fullness of your radiance. I want to see you. And what does God say to him? That's not a good idea, Moses. You'll die. 
Like, you can't handle it. It will kill you. So here's the deal, Moses. Here's what I'll do for you. I'll take you, and you can go hide in this corner, in this cleft of this rock face, and I'm going to pass by. And when I pass by, I'm going to hide my hand over you so you don't see the front side coming towards you. You can't see my face, Moses, or you'll die. But when I pass by, I'll let you see my backside or my hind parts, Moses. My heels, Moses. That's what you can see and continue to live. So in Exodus chapter 33, you find that story recounted. As Moses asked to see the glory of God, and God says, no, it'll kill you. And when God passes by, Moses, even the backside of God, even the heels of God's glory, they light Moses up so it becomes like the most radiant Christmas light you've ever seen in your life. They light him up so when he goes down to communicate with the people, he's got to wear a veil over his face because his face is shining so brightly. We don't even know how long it lasted for some unspecified period of time when Moses comes down. And then in Exodus chapter 34, God gives the law to Moses on the tablets. And then in Exodus 35, God gives Moses instructions about the tabernacle. Exodus 33, God, show me your face. Let me see your glory. Moses, you can't handle it. Here's my backside. Here's the law, Moses. And let me show you where my glory is going to be contained so that it won't wipe out all of Israel. It's going to be contained in this tent. And as you travel from place to place and wander in the wilderness, my glory will reside in this tent behind this curtain so that it won't devastate you. And in Exodus 35, they gives the instructions for the tabernacle. And Israel would construct a tabernacle. And that's where the presence of God would dwell among his people as they moved in the wilderness until such a time that God would bring them into the land of promise. And they would build the temple where his presence would dwell among his people. The tabernacle would be that place where the glory of God would dwell among his people, where the priest would bring offerings and make sacrifices, where the people of God would participate in the worship of God. Show me your glory. You can't handle it. Here's the law. Build a tabernacle. That's where I'm going to reside. That's where my presence will be. That's where I will veil my glory, Moses. And then you get to John chapter 1, verse 14. And out of all the words that John could have used to describe Jesus being clothed in the likeness of man and becoming like one of us and rubbing shoulders with us. He says, The Word became flesh and tabernacled among us and dwelt among us. Do you see why John chose this word? Because he's saying, In Jesus Christ, what you have is what Moses wanted to see. What you see in Jesus Christ is what Moses made a request for from God many years ago on that mountain. Show me your face, God. You can't handle it, Moses. It will wipe you out. And in Jesus Christ, John says, that what you and I have eyes to see now that Moses longed to see is the face of God. The person of God. That what Moses wanted to see and he couldn't, the glory, the glory of God whose backside and hind parts and heels lit up the face of Moses so brightly that what you see in Jesus is that God's back is now turned and you see his face. 
You see the full weight of the Father, of the, 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 the Son who reveals the, 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 the glory of the Father. Isn't that what he says? He tabernacled among us, and we have seen his what? His glory. Glory is the only Son from the Father. That in Jesus Christ you see the fullness, the weight of God's glory. In fact, that word glory literally means this. It means the weight of someone. Their worth, their majesty, their, their weight. And in Exodus 33, God says to Moses, Moses, you can't handle my full weight. You can't. It will crush you. Those of you who have young kids, maybe you've had this experience before, laying on your living room floor, and they come running in, right? And they just want to jump on top of you. And they want to wrestle, okay? This is a regularly occurring event in my household right now. Okay, and so my, both my eight-year-old and four-year-old, right? My eight-year-old usually starts it, okay? And so Caleb comes running in, he jumps on top of me, and he's like pushing against me, and he's wanting to, you know, pin me down to the floor and count and then stand up and flex, like, because he's won, right? I taught him how to do that. And so, so, so he, he, he wants to pin me, and then Sarah comes over, and she's got this cutest little female wrestler face. She's like, Grr! She jumps on top of me, and she tries to wrestle. And so, you know, I don't just lay there limp that wouldn't be any fun so I kind of push him around and we wrestle and I pin him down and put him in choke holds I don't actually apply pressure by the way uh, and so we, we we wrestle down there on the floor but listen as a part of that wrestling on the floor there are occasions where I find my body laying on top of their body but with my four-year-old daughter in particular she's so young and her body is still so fragile at least that's what I like to think so fragile that if I allowed her to feel my full weight, it would crush her. A man who's six foot tall, 100 and something pounds, right? 185, 90, depending on Thanksgiving, how much I had to eat. 185, 190 pounds laying on top of this little four-year-old. It would crush her. And that's what God says to Moses on the mountain. He says, though I full weight, Moses, if you felt it, it would crush you. But John says, John says that in Jesus Christ, what you have is the full weight of God's face. That he's come downstairs to be visible and vulnerable, and he is the unfiltered glory of God that you see in the face of Christ. So you don't need a tent any longer, you don't need a veil any longer. Because Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. All of you who are humble. That Jesus, in Luke's gospel, he would be a cause for the rising and the falling of many in Israel. That those who are humble would rise, and those who are proud, they would fall and be crushed under the weight of his glory. Because they want to magnify their own glory when Jesus is saying, I have the glory of the Father that you need. Dick Lucas, who was a rector at a church in England for many, many, many years, he retired now. He, he, kind of, he kind of pictured this dialogue taking place between the earliest Christians and their pagan neighbors as Christianity began to kind of develop within a very pagan and hostile culture. And so as someone perhaps became converted to Christianity and they began to interface with their pagan neighbors, they began to have these, you can envision these conversations taking place. 
And so as, they, as, the, as the Christian said to their neighbor, hey, listen, uh, and they ask, or, or as the pagan neighbor asked, hey, what religion are you? Or what, what, what God do you worship? And he says, well, I'm a Christian. He said, oh, a new religion. Tell me about it. Tell me about this new religion that you um, are now a part of. Where's your temple? Where do you, where do you, where, where do you guys worship? And the Christian would respond, well, we, we, don't, we don't have a temple. Jesus is our temple. To which the pagan would probably respond, really? You don't have a temple? How, how does that work? Right? So, so, so tell me who, who your priest is. What do, you, what do your priests do? Well, we don't have priests. We have a priest, a high priest. His name is Jesus. Okay, well, well don't, don't you have to, don't you have a place to bring sacrifices or offerings? Well, no, no not, not really. We, we have a sacrifice and an offering that was presented for us. It was Jesus. Well, you, you have to do all these things to curry the favor of the gods, right? You have to bring them these offerings. No, Jesus is our offering. Jesus is our sacrifice. Jesus is our temple. Jesus is our priest. To which the pagan would likely respond, what kind of religion is this? You don't have a temple. You don't have priests. You don't have offerings that you have to bring. To which perhaps the early Christian would respond, it's unlike any other religion you've ever known. Because in every other religion, every other religion, what must you do? You must do all these things to be accepted. But in Christ, all has been done for you to be accepted. And so now you respond with a life of honoring him in holiness and obedience. It flips every other religion on its head because the glory of God is in the face of Christ. The full weight of his glory is now in the person of Jesus who is born in a manger, accessible like a baby. That's what you have in Christianity. And the tabernacle is pointing forward. It was the picture that pointed forward to all these realities, the place where God's presence would dwell. It's in Jesus now and in his church the place where sacrifices were offered. Jesus was the sacrifice. The place where the priests would come and perform their duties. Jesus is the priest. He is the mediator between us and the Father. There is no other human agent that mediates the relationship now that we have with God other than Him. The fullness of God's glory is manifest in Jesus. And so do you see That if what John says here is true, that Christmas is not just something that should warm our hearts every 12 months, but it should radically and absolutely change our hearts. As Paul says, you're beholding the glory of God in the face of Christ and being transformed from one degree of glory to another. And that... That, the fact that God has come downstairs in Christ to show, make visible the full weight and revelation of his glory. That is what will anchor us, no matter what changes externally. And that is what will drive us like an engine in this new location where God is leading us to set up shop and have a presence, a gospel presence among people. These things, these truths that we celebrate every year, 
will secure us and propel us. So this Advent season, in the midst of all of our busyness, and listen, I understand. Here's my prayer for us as a church, is that every heart, every heart, would prepare him room. Every heart. Because he has come, come down to me and to you to make visible what Moses only wished he could see. Would you pray with me? Father, today we thank, we're thankful for the revelation of Christ, that he is our temple, that he is our priest, that he is our sacrifice, that all of these things in the Old Testament There were pictures that pointed to him as the reality. And may this message of you becoming visible and vulnerable in him, while at the same time the full weight of your glory being revealed through him, may that be the bedrock. May that be the bedrock that secures us and anchors us and stabilizes us in the midst of all the things that are changing around us. And may it also be the engine that propels us forward. As we think about what it means to go downstairs in the lives of people that we will now reside among to take to the world this love, this hope, this faith, this rare, relentless grace. Because it's still the way that you're taking to the world through your church. May the incarnation not just be this theological doctrine that we leave on a shelf. God, may it inform our practice and how we function as a church by establishing a presence among the people that you are bringing and desire to bring so that we might show them by your grace, through your spirit, the beauty that is the face of Christ.